When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. What exactly is culture and where does it come from? As children, we're taught about the uncanny power of an original moment of genius. Maybe Orpheus, maybe Homer, but instead, Perhaps we should be fixated on something very different. The electric chain of transmission, the ultimate green energy, whereby what is not so much new as new to you gets retold, retailed, or in fact, renewed. Mediators are not just essential supplements, they're the whole kit and caboodle. It's mediation, transmission, or if you like, appropriation all the way down. Even if you don't like, it might be appropriation all the way down. So runs the argument of an utterly fascinating new book, Culture, the story of us from cave art to K-pop. And guess who we've got in the studio to discuss it today. From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, a podcast dedicated to making sense of contemporary problems by activating writing from the past. And if that sounds weird to you, gimlet-eared listeners, that's because we're activating our very earliest tagline in honor of a professor who's not only our most recent, but also one of our earliest guests. So I'm John Plotz, hello, joined by the more than gimlet-eared, the eagle-eared or owl-eared Elizabeth Ferry. Um, hello, Elizabeth. Hi, John. Um, and we are hosting our once and future guest. Hello, Martin. Hi, John. Thanks for having me back. It's so great to welcome Martin Puchner, professor of English and theater at Harvard, editor of more than one Norton anthology, and author of many wonderful prize-winning books, among them The Written World and A Wonderful Family History, The Language of Thieves. But he joins us today to discuss his fascinating new book, Culture, the Story of Us. Okay, so Martin, it's great to have you. And as you know, the ordinary recall this book format with a new book under discussion is just to invite you to start off by laying out what strike you as the key questions or key claims of the book. Thanks, John. And the the book really started when I, as we all have, I think recently or for a longer time, sitting around the dinner table, bemoaning the decline of the arts and humanities, with a lot of hand wringing, a lot of you know sadness, and in sort of in the middle of that dinner conversation, I, I sort of suddenly realized that I wasn't even sure what the arts and humanities really were, what the the big point of them are, what the big arc of the history of the arts and humanities is. So I suddenly realized that before I start or continue complaining about their decline, I should really ask myself, what, what is this thing whose decline we're actually uh, bemoaning all the time? So then I you know, went to my study and started to read and think and talk to people, buttonholing everybody, you know, what do you think the humanities are? What do you think the arts are for? And I got a great variety of different answers. Um, and at some point in this exercise, I realized that I probably had been 
asking the wrong question or was after sort of slightly the, the wrong thing, that really what, what I wanted to do was tell not so much the history of the humanities as a very specific discipline that started in the Italian Renaissance and you know was revived in various ways, but really what I wanted to tell was the history of culture as a kind of history of humans as a meaning-making species, as a species that has produced these particular artifacts and practices that don't seem to have any particular utility or sort of immediate purpose, and yet seems incredibly important, including for the survival of the species, because humans from you know, the earliest records we have spent an enormous amount of resources on these activities, starting with cave art uh, uh, all the way to the present. So it's clearly something crucial this meaning making activity but how how did this work what are the what's the logic of it what's what's the driving force of its history so that was really my starting point and your starting point was also cave art exactly it it started with cave art uh, in part because those those are among the earliest you know elaborate artifacts so i start with the the, the story then, be, so my starting point was this question, this dinner uh, 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 table conversation, but then the history I wanted to tell, I wanted to start with cave art, in this case, the Chauvet Cave, uh, about 30,000, 35,000 years ago, uh, in part because those are the earliest artifacts, but also because the cave art then ended up encapsulating, for lack of a better word, uh, a lot of the important, what I ended up seeing as the important through lines. Um, first off, that it is a space, the, the Chauvet Cave, of meaning-making rather than utility, because humans never went, lived in, in that cave. They never went there for shelter. Um, they only went there to engage in the decoration of this cave over an number, incredible number of generations, thousands of years of continual work. Um, it's also clear that it wasn't just painting, it was used for rituals. There is some evidence in other caves that some of the abstract markings uh, identify places from which to sing or make music with particular echo effects. So it was really the sort of all-encompassing special experience that was created there century after century after century. So it encapsulated that. And it encapsulated the question of transmission, because that you mentioned that in your introduction, and that became for me the crucial uh, question of cultural history. Because unlike our biological genes, we don't pass down cultural knowledge or any knowledge automatically. We need to create special storage systems, or we have to engage in person-to-person -person transmission practices. And so for me, the cave became one such storage technique, so to speak, that allowed the facilitation of uh, uh, creating a kind of cultural tradition from one generation to the next. So that's actually a great way of thinking about these chains of transmission and mediation, because you're right, the way I set it up in the introduction, I was 
thinking of culture to culture transmission. So we could maybe discuss some of your wonderful stories about movement between India and China and people not only going from one culture to another, but also coming back because it seems as if the, the revenant move is very important, you know, to, to go and also return. But, but your point is that generational transmission, even quote within a culture is itself already a problem of mediation and transmission. Do you, do you want to talk more about how you thought about those together? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I really started with the generational transmission and then really, and that's maybe the last thing I want to say about the Chauvet cave is what happens when that transmission gets interrupted mm. or when the storage systems fail or malfunction, which they do all the time. And the Chauvet cave and the Chauvet cave was an external event, a, a, an, an earthquake shut off the entrance to the cave and no one could enter it for a couple of thousand years. I became a kind of time capsule. I became obsessed with time capsules, became a sort of a minor through line through the book. But then a few thousand years later, another earthquake or some you know landslide opens up a side entrance to the cave and a second group of humans enters the cave. And I started to really identify with that second group of humans because we, uh, they, they, be, they, they were introduced to these artworks that had been produced thousands of years in the past by a very, probably very different culture, very different groups of humans. And they had to try to figure out what this was. And they somehow did. And then they continued that work after that interruption in their own way. And so sort of bridging that that interruption became for me the 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 point i'm trying to put this is that they were late comers uh, and mm -hmm. i think when it comes to culture we are all late comers mm -hmm. we are always confronted with stuff something that we only dimly understand if at all but which we try to have to create a kind of attitude to cultivate an attitude towards these fragments and and objects that that survive and and that 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 being a latecomer, that I think that's true of all of the episodes in the book. One of the things I really loved about the book was that was kind of the way you showed how many things there are that put culture sort of in a way at risk, right? Like there's earthquakes and there's wars and there's misunderstandings and there's like any, you know, things washing overboard. Um, but at the same time, those, they have this sort of constantly coming back quality. And that obviously you chose particular stories and not others. Um, but, you know, linking that to your, your, the way you began about, about this sort of, uh, mood of what's happening to the humanities or what's going to happen, um, Ultimately, in some ways, I found the book to be very optimistic in the sense that it was sort of like, well, yeah, it's a big mess, but ultimately, you know, these things keep kind of coming back and not necessarily in the way you expect, but there's this kind of, um, yeah, it, irrepressibility of it. So I don't know if you want to say any more about how you approach that. Yes. Well, thank you for putting it that way. Um... Elizabeth, it, it does resonate with me. And, you know, some of the reviews have complained that it's too optimistic. And I, I and I get their their point. And, you know, as you've said, there are lots of stories of destruction in, in the book as well. But though it's true, I, of course, could have also 
focused on episodes where things just disappear and are gone forever. Uh, that would have made not just for a depressing book, but also I think for a more boring one. And and yes, it would have acknowledged perhaps yes, things disappear and and get lost. And 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 that you know that's maybe true of I don't know, uh, maybe it's ninety nine percent of all artifacts. I, I think it's actually less. Um, because and you do while, mention uh, some. It's not like you never you talk about things that have been lost and we have no idea. Of, of course, I do mention some. And, you know, of course, we also we don't know what we don't know in many cases. Uh, but at the same time, I did start half the impression that it's it's actually kind of hard to even in cases where, you know, invading armies try to destroy a culture, as the Spaniards did with the Aztecs, for example, they didn't manage actually to destroy everything. It's kind of hard to destroy a culture without a trace. Uh, tra and you are, are an, an anthropologist, you know this better than than I do. And so that that I, I think that's maybe the source actually of my optimism. I haven't quite thought about it, but, but now that you mentioned it. Actually, can I sort of pursue that point? Because that does relate. I was, as you were describing the, the cave that is closed and then open again, I was thinking about the analogy of Gilgamesh getting rediscovered, you know, in the 1890s or whatever it is. And also the way that the Renaissance was called the Renaissance, you know, as if it had like skipped over. And so part of your argument seems to be that traces and ruins and fragments, which it's easy to think of as as purely scholarly interest, right? You could say, oh, yes, it's true. These little bits of culture are still there. Like we can find traces of, of pre-Columbian, quote unquote, culture in, in North America, but they're only only available for scholars. But I think you're saying something different, right? You're saying that like traces and ruins and imperfectly um, preserved cultural remnants are, are sort of part of the process of building an, a, any generation of culture. Yeah. I think that's right. And so I think maybe the, the way to put this is that ruins aren't just for scholars, they're for everyone. And I was really struck by how deep the recovery of human, of ruins goes in cultural history, including the Chauvet cave, if you want to call the, you know, re-entry into the cave, yeah. the kind of re-entry into, it's not quite a ruin because it was so perfectly preserved. That's a great thing about caves. They are these time capsules. And, and this is a side point, perhaps, but I was struck by the weird combination of destruction and preservation that I often see. And that is maybe another way of coming back, Elizabeth, to your earlier point where you have, like like the landslide in the scape or the volcano in Pompeii, you have these moments of destruction uh, that at the same time, are, you could say that's the worst thing. You have a volcano that kills everybody, including all the artists, all the art making, terrible for culture, fantastic for cultural history, because you have that, you know, that, that, that perfectly preserved uh, Roman town uh, and many of the artifacts that were preserved, including that South Asian statue I talk about, would have disappeared without a trace. Uh, and so that happens again and again, that destruction and preservation weirdly go hand in but hand. Can we pursue that with Gilgamesh though, Martin? Because like Gilgamesh is such an interesting example where after the early 20th century, it comes rushing back and the modernists are like, awesome, we have this great Enkidu story that we can tell, which the three of us have discussed before 
sure. But but it also gets cut out of the loop. So it's like missing from Roman culture. It's missing from Greek culture. It's missing from the Middle Ages. It's missing from Arabic culture of the, you know, the whatever, the early rise of Arabic culture. You know, so how do you think about that? Yeah, it's true. And it's such a huge skip. It's skipping 2000 years, although in contrast to the caves, it's, you know, it's a small blip. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think the Epic of Gilgamesh is a perfect example of that, uh, because, you know, it gets, pres- how does it get preserved? So first, Ashurbanipal collects this Assyrian king in what's today Mosul, you know, as I was there in the fall, it was super moving to see how many of his palaces actually haven't even been excavated. Um, yeah. We know so, with pride that you were wearing a recall this book t-shirt I when was, you were there. That's a very important yeah. moment of cultural transmission, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wearing a recall this book t-shirt, I was in Ashurbanipal's palaces, uh, some that had just been started to be excavated again. In any case, so he collects these, but then these palaces burn down. Moment of destruction. But they're written on clay tablets. And mm-hmm. as we know, clay doesn't burn up it it hardens and then it was they these tablets were preserved if you if you will because the library burned down and you know becomes another time capsule for for uh, until Lair uh, discovers it in in 1849 or 48 yeah. and so yeah and then and then you have this hiatus, this interruption, in this case, a pretty long one, 2,000 years. And it's it's true. You have all these cultures without uh, knowledge of the Epic of Gilgamesh, just as you had all these generations of people living in what's today the south of France without being able to return to the Chauvet cave. But then you find it again, or the, the cave opens up again, and then you have to make sense of it even though it's so long ago. And in the case of the Gilgamesh, you don't know the language, you don't know the writing system. It takes decades to decipher, and we are still deciphering and still retranslating it as Elizabeth's father did. And so, yeah, but that's how cultural history works. I think those are not exceptions. I think that's sort of the conclusion I came to. They are the rule. I think that also links to um, a a sort of tripartite model that you propose, which maybe you could say more about a person to person transmission, stone memorials and texts like, um, uh, you know, that in other words, that there are uh, things that are graven in stone, so they become durable. There are things that are written in something like a library, which are sort of like stone monuments in a way, but also different because they require living curation. And then there's like person to person transmission. And and I see how they're all related, but they're distinct from one another as well. They're absolutely distinct. And, you know, anthropologists of, you know, are very good at focusing on the latter. And it's, it's in some ways very hard to uh, get a handle on. And one of the things I became so aware of writing this history is how biased it's biased in so many ways, but including in ways for cultures and practices that leave sort of hard, hard and durable traces. Um, though I, I became very interested in how sometimes, you know, writing on stone and oral transmission sort of weirdly complement one another. And one example is are, are these Ashoka, this Ashoka pillar. Uh, so uh, Ashoka, you know, South South Asian king, inscribes these pillars and stones with his edicts. It's very moving 
stories of conversion to Buddhism, uh, new ideas of kingship, um, written in a relatively new script. Uh, and the script, and it, you know, deliberately on stone, he thinks about that he'll be able to communicate to the future. He also thinks about these stone edicts as ultimately, even though the stone pillars are massive, somehow it, this will help spread the the, the his ideas of of kingship abroad to to the west and the east, which they do, but then at some point the script gets abandoned and the inscriptions become illegible. And later, travelers report on these pillars, but no one can read them anymore. Though there are oral stories that these pillars, because they are so massive, they call attention to themselves, sort of a crew around them. And so it's very interesting that in some sense, writing on stone, which you might think is the, uh, you know, the best way if you want to ensure that your message of Buddhism, I mean, I'm simplifying here, survives. It, it sort of works, but it also sort of work, didn't work. Oral stories preserved some traces of that knowledge for much longer until you know again in the 19th century the the writing as with Gilgamesh uh, with, with the epic of Gilgamesh cuneiform was deciphered and the the message well you know the stone started to speak to speak again so it's it's you know as cultures writing cultures tend to overestimate the mm -hmm. power of writing yeah. and don't realize that you actually need a lot of of infrastructure metadata tools. Yeah. well you need an institution yeah. of transmission uh, because otherwise it's just marks and stone so within it within anthropology um particularly of the caribbean there's a very lively now you know maybe 50 or more years old uh, conversation around the idea of creolization and creolization as this or at least I am of the I am of the lineage that takes creolization not as a kind of apt metaphor for a number of different global processes, but as a very specific, maybe not unique, but quite unusual situation in the Caribbean where, you know, not all the indigenous people were, you know, killed, but a very large majority were, which meant that, you know, unlike a lot of other cases, almost everyone who was there was sort of newly there, right? And and also that it was a, um, and this is less peculiar, I think, but um, such a dramatically, such a dramatic difference of power between the different contributors, right? Which many of your stories have some of that, but maybe not as often they're, they're sort of somewhat, people who see themselves as somewhat lateral to each other. Um, maybe not not exclusively but but what do you think about that you know and and i thought about it in terms of the Saint-Domingue story because another dimension and i i thought this the way you told the story was great and the sort of you know discussion of of Toussaint's, uh i have my quotation marks overshooting in a sense the the these enlightenment ideas and and um this kind of salon culture in the new world. Um, a creolization model might ask around things like the role of voodoo in the Haitian revolution as a set of ideas and as a, you know, it was 
the, the announcement of the uprising took place in a ceremony and there was a whole kind of, I'm curious, and again, it's not that I, uh, it's not a criticism of the way you tell the story, but it, it's a way of thinking about what about situations where everybody's sort of, in one way, everyone's kind of on the same, at the same point where there's this sort of new sense of newness rather than an older tradition and a newer tradition kind of trying to fight it out. Yeah, no, it's a very, it's very interesting to describe that situation in the Caribbean that way. Um, my immediate, uh, and I want to think more about that, uh, my immediate answer is that it's true they everyone is maybe newly arrived, though under very different circumstances, as you say, but everyone brings something with them. So, I mean, it's not like they all arrive there and say, okay, let's create this tabula rasa. I mean, those are the strange utopias uh, that, that, you know, sort of Europeans projected onto uh, the new world, perhaps, or, or some, you know, no, no place uh, yes, island. And if I can uh, just add, you're quite right, and I should have included that. And in fact, the in some sense, the kind of miraculous part of it is that even though Africans came with so much less actual stuff and with so much more dislocation, mm. the very great degree mm. of African influence on this clearly. Uh, moment yeah so true which just shows the importance once again here of of oral you know person to person transmission and and what what can be retained by that but you know i i think you're absolutely right you're describing a very specific uh, and as you say this particular process of creolization very specific to the caribbean but i would say similar degree of specificity is true of in some sense, all of my episodes, because once I sort of settled on that dynamic, I think my goal was to show as wide an array of different types of hybridization or whatever you want to call it at work, because I think there's an incredible array array of what kind of actors, what kind of objects, how selective it is. Is it a whole package as it was with Roman Greece and then with China and Japan? Is it is it sort of one small thing? Is it what what are the you know re relations of power? Mm -hmm. uh, what are the mediators? Is it an entire invasion? Is it just one translator sort of finding their way across thousands of miles and then coming back with something? Is it a sort of accidental? Uh, is it deliberate? I mean, they, I mean, they're, they're like. I, I guess I didn't quite produce a chart where I, you know, it, with five dimensions. That would be a cool chart, put... actually. It would be. It, it seriously, it really would be interesting to think about the different axes there, because I realize that a lot of my questions are really focused on treating just one of those axes as if it was crucial. So I'll give you an example, because uh, uh, I saw you wince when I mentioned this concept of the revenant. So you. I, one of the things that I really love, it, 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 and it, it relates to your point about the fact that spatial transmission or culture to culture transmission has a kind of analogous relationship to temporal transmission, generation to generation. So I love these moments where you have an image of somebody who goes from one culture to another and then chooses to return. In fact, I think you even say about going from China to India that presumably many people went from China to India looking for Buddhist texts or looking for Buddhist enlightenment, but didn't come back. But then you have these few people who, who did come back. 
And of course, to me as an academic, as a humanities professor, that's analogous to what we do with the past. Like we're revenants to the past, but, but that's a very special cultural case that you're focusing on there. And I think, um, I don't know, first of all, I'd just love to hear you say more about how you think about those cases of people going and returning. It's almost, uh, I'll add another analogy. It's like Plato's allegory of the cave, right? Because you go out of the cave and then you go back to the cave, you know, like, like your job is not so much to step out into the sunlight and have the revolution. Your job is to be a mediator, to go back, you know, to, to have seen that other way of being, and return to the, you know, to return to tell about it. Yeah, it's it's interesting, you know, though, though I, I wasn't wins, it didn't wins because I thought it was a, a bad idea. I just, it was intriguing. I hadn't thought about it uh, in those terms. And listening to, to you elaborate on it now, John, uh, makes me realize that it's true. I think these people returning are unusual, though, for me, because I wanted to think about how something gets moved from one place to the next or how it gets translated, you you almost, you know, for, in order to be a translator, you first have to sort of learn the other language and then you have to sort of translate it back into, you know, your, your, your first language. And I think that maybe that must have been the model I had in mind when I followed, for example, the Chinese traveler Xuan Shang, you know, who goes to, to, to India and then translates, it brings back objects brings back manuscripts like literally bringing back objects but more importantly translating texts uh, into chinese sort of metaphorically bring them back or any the japanese monk who does the same thing with mm -hmm. with china, with china. And, yeah and so i think because i had that model those didn't seem to me the sort of exceptions but sort of the model almost what had to happen although now that i listen to you, it's true you could just have someone bringing something to another culture and then sort of settling there and i'm sure that that um that that also happened a lot though the you know the, the the mediating figures that sort of pop out at least popped out to me were, were the ones who do both you know Xuan Shang is sort of a celebrated figure in China as is any in in in, in Japan so you know the one who the ones who came back uh, uh, to 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 tell the tale in a certain way well, well, can I push that analogy to the Saint-Domingue case, Elizabeth, and see if there's more to be said there? Because maybe, you know, if we take the Orlando Patterson paradigm of slavery as social death, there's a kind of normative assumption that entering into the enslaved condition is a sort of cultural suppressor, you know, that you end up over there as labor force. And it's of the nature of the abjection and the dehumanization of slavery that, you know, things get stripped away. It's, it's like rebooting the disk drive, let's say, except your point, both of you were saying, I think that things don't actually get as stripped away as you might think. So in other words, there's a, there's a forced migration of enslaved populations going from Africa to the Caribbean in this case that we can I'm sure think of other cases where the, the transmission occurs regardless, even though paradigmatically, sociologically, it shouldn't because of right. the social death. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, the, the, the creolization argument, as I've described it, I, I, is, is at, at odds with Patterson's 
conclusions, although not at odds by any means with the description of slavery as a dehumanizing um, uh, experience. But, but you know, uh, at least, and I've, I've now thought of my recallable book, which, which is all about this, um, you know, a lot of sort of emphasis on, on for instance, the, the ways in which um, in one of the most kind of violent institutions of the world's history, um, there's these sort of spaces of negotiation, there are spaces of, of humanity, there are not particularly because of the kindness of, you know, the plantation owners, but, you know, for instance, one, one really telling detail that, that is described in this book by, which is by Sidney Mintz and Richard Price, um, is around, and other people as well have talked about it, is the ways in which it's a completely dehumanizing institution, but it also asked enslaved people to do things that only humans can do, like take care of children or, you know, supervise complicated mechanical operations. Can we think about the topic of the monastic community? I really love your interest in that. And if I understand you, you're not particularly making an argument about genesis in one place and transmission. You're making an independent origin argument, right? Like there's something structural that would make such communities arise. And and if I understood you, one of your points in the case of the Buddhist monastic communities is that they might stand in tension to other sacred spaces. We haven't really talked a lot about religion or theology here, but like to uh, that, that Buddhist monastic practice might offer the monastic site of cultural storage in contradistinction to, let's say, a religious belief that that uh, prioritizes the family or like living in and with the world. So can you say more about how much you're thinking about, like, are these sort of um, paradigmatic differences that you see everywhere or does the monastic function differently in different cases? How, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, so I think, but, you know, maybe someone can contradict this. It seems to me that Buddhism is really the first religion or practice, whatever label, they are all problematic, that is really based in its core on the monastic community, right? If you're, you cannot be a Buddhist really, uh, unless you are in a way a member of a Buddhist community, otherwise you're just a lay, you're sort of a, you know, a, a, a uh, an advocate or you're sort of a supporter you're not a real buddhist and that that seems to me pretty distinctive about buddhism and in some sense the earliest such formation it's interesting then to see that idea of the monastic community recur uh, uh, to use your revenant uh, uh, model uh, recur for example in the christian context where the 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 religion is very different you know it, it's not the case that only as a monk or a nun can you be a christian and it happens later it's i think a little unclear whether there was a so i don't know and i'm not very invested in saying this is com a complete in completely independent reinvention of the monastic idea i could imagine because buddhism was so important uh, and had spread to persia and so on and so forth that that there was some idea that trickled into the roman empire well 
Yeah, I have a sort of secret ulterior motive for asking it, and which is to ask about the status of, like, if you think about the word monk in English or monastic, it has the monad in it, right? So it has the notion of the individual. So, you know, there's a monastic tradition in the West, which is non cenobitic also, like there's this original desert fathers. And my sense is you're not as interested in that kind of solitary cogitation. You're more interested in the sociable. And, I, and I'm wondering if that's a soft or a weak, a, a soft or a hard preference. Like, in other words, are those anchoritics just outliers for you who are not that interesting? Or is it more like you just happen to prefer the sociable models? Well, it's interesting. I, I would say I focused on the monastic community because that's a crucial institution for the transmission of transmission. culture and knowledge, right. which is not the case for the, the hermits. Uh, though it's yeah. true that in the Christian context, it may have started with hermit practices. But, you know, I would say that if if I'm anti-hermit, so are most churches. So. Yeah. A long time ago, 30 years ago, I found myself on Mount Athos, which yeah. is all these, you know, Greek and and yeah. Greek mon uh, and, and Russian Orthodox monasteries. Uh, and it, I was there during a kind of flowering of sort of hermits that had become sort of charismatic. And I was yeah. taken to some of them. And then Mount Athos cracked down on yeah. the charismatic hermits. And, um, and, and, and that was that. So uh, they are fascinating figures, but for my story of cultural transmission, they don't seem get that. central. Yeah. Can I, okay, one final wrinkle, because I love the monastic community model. Like in your your wonderful colleague, Stephen Greenblatt's book, The Swerve, he sort of sets up the rediscovery of uh, an Epicurean tradition by way of essentially, as I remember it, passive kind of, transmission like the monasteries basically had these texts but they didn't know what to make of them so he has a vision of a sort of uh the the dark era uh, in which these texts just sat in the monasteries and then they were brought back into the light in the renaissance does that resonate with your understanding of this monastic transmission or you know, it, I, I love Stephen Greenblatt, and I'm always trying to imitate Stephen Greenblatt and be Stephen Greenblatt. <laughs> Just let me put that out there. But in this particular point, I, I don't. And um, because I think it's sort of a polemical renaissance, uh, you know, I, ideology, to, to use a, a bad word here, yeah. um, because, because, and this goes back to the question of transmission, just sitting there doesn't happen. I mean, the medieval monasteries were places of reproduction where texts text don't just survive. They have to be used. They have to be recopied. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's true that sometimes they were, you know, through palimpsests, they were overwritten. Okay, mm -hmm. I can see that. That's sort of more a material recycling of vellum, let's say. But e even, even that is fascinating. So I think that it's sort of a... Um, a dismissal, not just of the Middle Ages as Dark Ages, but also of 
older modes of reproduction, preservation and reproduction of knowledge. Uh, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm right now at the Villa Itati and we had a great seminar on Tibbuktu, which a scholar here was describing. Oh, the, the Arabists are always looking down on Timbuktu because they see it's just, oh, these were just, they were just copying texts. But the, the, the scholar here didn't believe that. But copying texts is actually huge it's it costs a lot of money it yeah. resources it and how you reproduce them and what kinds of yeah. commentaries you write on them these are very dynamic processes and so i that that's that's why i was so interested in the scriptorium of the of the medieval uh, that they were very active uh, places and i it's true i you know made a selection to 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 focus on hildebart Von, von Bingen in part because I think she really pushed the scriptorium in terms of creativity and what you can use that place of reproduction mm -hmm. in order to do something new. But I think it it let itself be pushed. She could use the scriptorium uh, um, in that way. And it just showed that it's not just a kind of passive uh, 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 um, kind of play. Um, I kind of wanted to throw out an existential question for you, which is that um, I feel like partly this book is a love song or a, a paean to, to mediators, cultural transmitters and explicators, yes, but also to translators. And I sort of wanted to ask you the existential question, which is about yourself. You know, like you're somebody who grew up in one country and one language tradition and now lives maybe in many, but as I know you, you live in another, let's say, in English. Um, um, though it's always a delight to hear you speak German, but it, it is, you know, so I just wanted to ask you, you know, personally, does this, how did you think about writing this book and yourself, your own story? You know, I, you know, as you know, you mentioned that I have written in autobiographical mode before, but actually in this book, I was not thinking of myself at all. And someone else, like a month ago, yeah. made the same observation. And yeah. it com I was completely surprised. Now <laughs> I'm somewhat prepared because you're the, <laughs> the second or third person who has pointed this out. But I was actually not thinking of but you know it just shows you that you always you know what what you do or both in terms of you know me moving from one country to the next the the person who pointed this out was i think thinking of my work on anthologies or just the fact that i in some sense identify probably with these figures who i turn into heroes and that's true but you know i i uh, to my shame or not i don't know i i actually was not I did not realize that while I was writing this book at all. Elizabeth, do you think this is a good time to pivot to our recallable books? Now that you have one, we can right. go to you first. You don't have to wait till I have one. Yeah. Um, so the one I I would like to put on the table is indeed the book called uh, The Birth of African-American Culture. I think it was originally published as The Birth of Afro-American Culture since it was published in the early 70s hmm. um, and later renamed in a newer edition. Um, which is by Sidney Mintz and Richard Price, anthropologists of the Caribbean, of long standing. And it's really um, sort of attempting to, to think about the, the mechanisms and the infrastructure of the ways in which these, these, um, this new form or this new um, expression of cultural vitality, and particularly the, um, the African uh, contributions to it, um, since those were 
you know, for a long time, they were either seen as non-existent or that, you know, Black culture in the Americas was kind of a, a failed attempt at white culture or something like that, right? Um, so they're really kind of pushing against that idea. And I'll just say one quick example that really spoke to me and is like your, you know, made me think about, um, is why your book made me think about it, um, is about... Uh, these kind of cultural patterns and they and they they mention as an example um that along very in various cultural contexts on the on the west coast of africa and central africa um twins the birth of twins is a is an important event that requires certain kinds of ritual responses um those can be honoring or they can be kind of you know expelling or sanctioning right but that sort of Twins is something that is, you know, a response to twins or, or twins as a kind of anomaly, a spiritual anomaly is, is sort of a pattern. And they were kind of imagining, you know, on a plantation where, you know, people don't necessarily speak the same language. They're not from the same place. They're, you know, violently disrupted. Many have died, you know, and twins are born. And there's kind of a scramble, like we've got something has to be done, but we're not quite sure what. And, you know, finding somebody who vaguely remembers from when, it, you know, and it's often a woman, although not always, right, from when she was a girl, what was done, and sort of the ways in which things get kind of put back together under those circumstances. So, um, and it has a similar kind of an ethos in a way to your to your Elizabeth, is this the Richard Price who worked on Martinique specifically? Yes. Uh, so oh, I, I once visited him in Martinique. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's a scary mark, Elizabeth, of how long you and I have been thinking together that I also had a Richard Price book in mind, which is First Time, the his, which is called The Historical Vision of an African-American People about temporal transmission of the stories of the first arrival in slavery, which is, again, a story about like the resurgence or the re the the revenants of culture and marked in in special sort of temporal units. Um, so, but I won't do that um, since you did it. And and so Martin, to give you the last word, I'm going to go next. And I'll say that mine is also a uh, Caribbean book, but it's Afrobane's Orinoco um, or The Royal Slave. And I actually think the oxymoronic quality of that subtitle, Royal Slave, is actually is very apropos because it's about the way in which um, in that novel, for those of you who don't know it, it's arguably the first novel in English. And it tells the story of a slave brought over from West Africa to what is now Suriname to the English colony there. And it is um, about his encounters both with the white enslavers and also with the indigenous population. And it really hinges not just on transmission and continuity of culture, which Elizabeth, I think you brought out as like such a crucial point, but it's also a book written by Bain was herself a royalist. And she brings out the royal nature of her hero, Orinoco, also called Caesar, um, in order to show how regal practices of Africa and regal practices of England basically make the royalty of each country more like one another than the non-royals of the same quote unquote race. So it's a wonderful example of how slippery these categories, cultural categories were like in these early, in that early era of slavery. And I think it, it sort of goes to your point, Martin, about the perpetual recombination of these cultural threads, how things get picked up and, and turned and appropriated in ways, but always, you know, sort of building on the ruins of what went before. 
Um, so we'll have links to all of these in the show notes. And yeah, Martin, over to you. You know, at first I was struggling over which book to recall. I thought at first I thought I would use the occasion to showcase some of the texts that I feel like should be better known in the book, like the Kebra Nagas, the Ethiopian scribal text. But then I thought that would be somehow cheating if I use one of the episodes. And so because I'm in Italy right now, I have been for a couple of weeks and I've been sort of thinking about the Italian intellectual traditions, I'm going to uh, um, use an Italian, Roberto Calasso, who died just a few years ago. And he's sort of a slightly younger Umberto Eco. And I think of him as sort of a sidekick to Umberto Eco. That's a totally unfair way of describing him. But he's, as I said, sort of a similar generation. He's a writer and publisher. He ran a publishing house for a long time. And so he did this unusual thing where he started to write these books, the most well-known of his, I think he was never super famous in the States, it's called The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony, where he would use sort of an entire body of myth, in this case, Greek and to some extent Roman myth, and sort of retell it in a modern way, but with, while being mythic. So it, it's a really cool way and quite a unique way of retelling old mythic stories for the modern era. His He also wrote about other you know everything that's gone wrong with with the modern era but he that and he did the same thing he tried to do the same thing with with hindu uh, mythology um uh the book of ka uh, um it's not quite as successful i think but uh so taking you know a body of ancient legends and myths and trying to retell them for the here and now he died two two years ago um, it's sort of a cool thing. And it suddenly occurred to me, you know, it, it is sort of what I, one of the things I talk about in the book. And, and because I feel like he's not known enough, Roberto Calasso, uh, The Marriage of Cadmus and Harmony and other of his books, I'm going to pick him. Okay, thanks. And I should say that it's it's totally fine for you to think of him as the sidekick of Umberto Eco because we all think of Richard Price as just the dad of Leah Price. So but ex- you know, I didn't want to say it's that. Fine. Exactly. It's an honorable <laughs> it's an honorable designation. So so Martin, this peripatetic conversation has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And the same thanks to you, dear listeners at home. Um if you enjoyed this conversation, uh please check out the Recall This Book archives um at our website. And for all of us at the podcast, thanks for listening and goodbye for now. Recall This Book is the creation of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. Sound editing is by Kamaya Bagla, and music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy. We gratefully acknowledge support from Brandeis University and its Mandel Center for the Humanities. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. Finally, if you enjoyed today's show, please forward it to five people or write a review and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.